Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. In today's podcast, my longtime friend J.S. recounts his years of drinking and nearly 19 years of sobriety. Like many AA stories, Jay's foray into alcoholism stemmed from a difficult childhood in a home where his father drank and fear and confusion reigned. By the time he started drinking in his early teens to quell the fear, he had set the pattern for a life of alcoholic behavior. Dishonesty and narcissistic disregard for others both isolated him and caused pain to those who cared about him. As his adult life was rapidly spinning out of control, Jay realized he needed help. He went into treatment and, subsequently, AA. But what started out as a good idea inevitably failed as he continued to drink, paying lip service to both treatment and half-hearted involvement in AA. In fact, as he collected countless desire chips on what seemed to be a weekly basis, he labeled himself a Ph.D. in relapse. Neither pride in nor practice of that degree did much to mitigate Jay's incomprehensible demoralization. As the elevator was plunging towards the bottom, his moment of clarity finally came into focus, and Jay was ready to stop drinking and do the actual work to stay sober. Though Jay's story is hilarious at times and tragic at others, it remains a cautionary tale of what can go wrong in the pursuit of sobriety. Its value as a stark backdrop to Jay's sober life in AA cannot be undervalued. His AA-inspired service work in the community and his no-nonsense approach to sponsoring other men in the program provides solid footing from which Jay can influence the good in other people's lives. His daily commitment to the basics of the program has also made it possible to avoid hitting the potholes in his road of happy destiny. He is both available and approachable to others in a way that encourages his fellows to follow suit. I'm confident you will benefit by listening to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews as we focus the next 65 minutes on my close friend and AA brother, J.S. I'm Jay and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jay. Thanks for joining me on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. It's been a while since you and I have spent some time together, at least since before the pandemic. And I I appreciate you coming in this evening and and letting me talk with you, get to know more about your story. Of course, I've heard bits and pieces of it and trying to put it all together over the years has been interesting, but I don't know that I've ever heard your story beginning to end. Hmm. Every little piece I hear is intriguing, so... Uh, now you've been so you're coming up on nine is it 19 years? Yes, May 29th will be 19 years. So in my 18th year, consecutive weekends included. Yeah, that's great. Now, yeah. is this the first? Was that the first time you tried getting sober 18 years ago? Not even close. No, really. Well, yeah. When was your first try getting sober? Well, my first real attempt was in September of 2002. You know, I'd been living in this. Um, little patio home. And the last couple years of drinking just got really dark. Hmm. Uh, I was working in a a radio station at that time, which um, was fantastic for an alcoholic. That's for sure. Uh, It was my alcoholic uh, accelerant. But I even was, you know, struggling there. Struggling with the job? 
while struggling not being as crazy or, or crazier than some of those. That's when it just like the wheels started falling off for me. You know, just started missing more work than I was used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd come in in the mornings and, you know, people were commenting on my appearance and, and I'm thinking, well, like, isn't everybody doing like, you know, one of those things. So I, you know, decided to let everybody know. Um, well, this is after <laughs> a, uh, a Christmas party incident. So I, I guess uh, you've heard bits and pieces of my story, as you said. You are part of my story, too, by the way. Um, but first year in that job in the radio station, I had a bright idea that I would host a Christmas party for my boss and all my coworkers. I had this, what I thought was a shiny, cool, hip place and had a huge bar. And, um, you know, I wanted wanted it to be like my dad's, this huge bar with beautiful glass shelves and the nicest bottles. And anyway, so I started drinking, pre-gaming, of course. Mm-hmm. By the time my coworkers and my boss and everybody got there at seven or eight, I was already in blackout mode. Next thing I know, it's the following Monday at work. Now, keep in mind, this is 2002. So one one thing on my gratitude list is there is no social media (laughs) or Facebook. But Monday morning at work, and I had heard a couple rumblings. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I I did some stuff that was not good. And sure enough, people were coming by my little desk and looking at me and laughing and kind of just keep on walking. And, you know, keep in mind, the people in radio are, are big personalities and love to party. You know, so I'm like, well, aren't I like everybody else? But like the looks they were giving me. And finally, you know, I was waiting on this one buddy who was there that I knew he would tell me the truth. And, you know, he finally gets in. He's like, you don't remember any of that? You don't remember what you're doing? I'm like, uh, I might need a little help with that. <laughs> you know, there, there was a movie out there called Almost Famous. And the, the big part of that movie is the lead singer of the rock and roll band gets on the, the roof naked and like jumps off into the pool so yeah, yeah. apparently i decided to recreate that oh, no. in front of my staff and my boss and everybody else and i got naked up on my roof and that did help explain why you know underwear was hanging on the, the fence at one point but it's sort of funny but like that incomprehensible demoralization i just felt that to my absolute core when he told you this yeah when i figured out what it was and and i had heard that one of the sales assistants like had a camera and she took photos and i'm like oh god you know and and i had done that my whole life just you know crazy stuff and then i just laughed it off like oh well it was a party like it was this it was that and and i had had this realization that like i'm even crazier than this crazy bunch now and that was kind of the beginning of the end in terms of a, a very dark period for me. Because after that, what I told everybody was, well, I, I'm going to, you know, kind of, you know, I'm just going to get healthier and work out and not go out to happy hours. The reality was, Howard, I just wanted to go home and just drink. So you went underground. I went underground. And, you know, so I did that for as long as I could. You mentioned earlier about having done crazy stuff all your life, and I'm curious where the behavior when you were drunk came from. Was that an earlier time in your life when before pre-alcohol? Tell me about your family of origin and what was it like growing up in your home? Yeah, I would say probably always had the propensity to do, you know, do outlandish things. Um, so I was the oldest of four. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, my dad, um, who 
you know, I still don't know to this day if he was an alcoholic, if he was or he wasn't. I'm not mm -hmm. supposed to the label, but I will just say he had every single characteristic that that came along with that. When he wasn't drinking, it was restless, irritable, and discontent. Mm. And, you know, I came from a, a, a large family of social animals, you know, knew I'd have a good time. Did you notice that when you were a little kid? I mean, was this happening when you were, were a child that you noticed that going on? Yeah, well, I did notice that, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of happiness in the house, you know. And when my dad was there, he was just usually angry about something. And yeah, my mom trying to raise four kids was, you know, in a tough spot herself. And, you know, the only time there was really joy uh, seemingly was, you know, on the weekends or after work. Sometimes my dad's buddies or my uncle would come by and, you know, they'd have some have some beers. Mm -hmm. And um you know, then there was a little bit of laughter and stuff and that kind of thing. So did you equate the laughter and the booze? I mean, did you look forward to him having the beer with his friends so you could at least hear him laugh and have a good time? In a sense, yes, because I knew that's where I could, you know, joke around a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, just kind of be okay. Because before, you know, when it wasn't that time, it was like everything I was doing, it was, was wrong. Mm. And always getting screamed and yelled at. And for anybody who knew my dad's dad, you know, that's where a lot of that came from. And I think my dad did the best he could. But a lot of that stuff just came right down the line. Um, my dad was also the oldest of four children. Mm -hmm. So it just... Uh, kind of repeated itself, I guess, and just came right down. And, um, you know, a couple things, and it's interesting because, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on this uh, just the past couple years. And me 10 years ago probably would have said, oh, yeah, it was a little tough, but everything was fine. Uh, kind of find everything really wasn't fine. There was just a, a lot of stuff that, you know, that came with being the number one son and the direct hit, you know, for someone who. Uh, might not have wanted to have kids at that early age. I identified with the troublemaker. You know, I remember them saying like, uh oh, here comes trouble. And I remember like, okay, I could get attention from that. Like, oh, if I do bad things, they seem to pay attention to me. So I remember identifying as a little kid as like, oh, I just, I'll be a troublemaker. You know, and second thing I, um, in, in this work that I've been doing, um, you know, trying to uncover and discover a little bit more, uh -huh. you know, had, had some good conversations with some, some uh, relatives that were, you know, around in the younger formative years of my life, you know, from cradle to, to three, four, whatever. One thing that sticks out is, you know, they told me like, your name wasn't Jay back then. Your name was God damn it, Jay. <laughs> Everything, you know, from your dad was just, you know, that was your name. So I, I can just picture it, you know, just kind of, you know, having that, that reaction all the time. And um, it explains a lot. That's for darn sure. So what was it like living with that? It was, it was really, really tough. You know, if someone were to ask me, you know, how would you describe your childhood? I would just say confusion and fear. Hmm. Those are the two main things because I just, you know, I was always scared of something, but I was also confused because, you know, I believe that I was born with like a, a bright soul and, and a good heart. You know, it just felt like, you know, a lot of things I did, you know, I was getting in trouble for not the, the bad things, but like I was trying to be a good kid. Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, I just remember like, you know, my parents would be kind of these people, you know, on the outside to all the outside people. And then in the home, it was just completely different. And, I, and as a kid, I couldn't quite 
you know, compute that. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And, um, you know, little things happen that I remember, you know, I gave a, uh, a kid, um, God, I was probably say second grade, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, a kid forgot his lunch money. So I gave him an extra quarter cause I had one. And, you know, I remember going to the dinner table that night back when we actually had yeah. dinner at the table and, um, I brought it up like, Oh, this is a really good thing. Like it felt good to help somebody else. And I remember I got screamed at and told that was a bad thing. And it's funny, the things that stick with you, you know, here I am a 50 year old man, and this is probably when I was eight. So do you remember when you had your first taste of alcohol? Yeah, I think I was either 13, late 13, early 14. I remember it. Um, ironically, it, it, you know, had the same sequence of events as my very last drunk. <laughs> yeah, it just ended up, you know. Did you black out? You blacked out from the first time you got drunk then? Mm-hmm. Yep. So was that a pattern that repeated every time you got drunk? Just about every time, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you spent your life having to rely on other people to tell you what you did the night before? Mostly, yeah. Who's the comedian who said that uh, blackouts are like time travel? Have <laughs> Going back to that that feeling at the desk of that incomprehensible demoralization. I mean, yeah, I used to joke that it was time travel, too. I had a million jokes for all that stuff. Yeah. And it was just so I couldn't feel. You know, it was just the, the only thing I could tell myself. And, you know, when I got to that dark point, I just I kind of ran out of those, hmm. you know, those excuses to make. I ran out of the funnies. Nothing was a, a party foul anymore. It was just bad. So were you a popular kid because you were willing to do the funny stuff and you were willing to get into trouble? What was your role as the adolescent slash teenager moving into high school with regard to drinking? Well, we moved from Michigan to Houston uh, in between fourth and fifth grade. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, if you were to ask somebody, they might remember me as, oh, yeah, he was a funny guy or something like that. Um, I did like sports. I was pretty good with sports. Um, you know, the real kind of, you know, event that happened shortly after we moved here is, um, you know, my dad and mom split, mm. you know, what that looked like. I was, was like sixth or seventh grade. And just, um, one morning I woke up and mom said, your dad's gone. And, uh, and he was, <laughs> and did you have any inclination that that might happen? Uh, you know, looking back, I can see things at the time. It was just, what, what are you talking about? Like, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, we could tell things weren't good. So as you know, you get to, you know, uh, become an adult yourself and then look at relationships. And, you know, I, I was able to, you know, look back and see that there was, you know, there just wasn't an, an, any affection, any warmth, any, anything between the two of them. It was, you know, okay. And my mom was an absolute wreck. Mm. Dad moved right in with a girlfriend, which he probably had before. And, uh, you know, here's what I remember, Howard, is just thinking like, all right, you know what? I've tried to be good. I've tried to do all this. Da, 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 da. It's not working out. Um, I, I'm just going to really just, you know, kind of rebel out here. And I think for the first couple of years, you know, I got through junior high okay. Uh, but then high school hit and, you know, somewhere in there, I just had the first drink and um, I changed immediately. I just said, okay, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. I quit all organized sports. My grades, which were mostly A's and some B's, just plummeted. And I I just became a different person. What kind of crowd were you hanging with before and after you became this rebel? 
Uh, oh, you know, I, I was the type that I had a bunch of different kind of crowds of friends. You know, I could be this person over here and this person over here. And I, I guess, I guess, you know, a bit of a chameleon. But I do know this, like whatever group I was in, you know, as you know, you hear a lot in the rooms, it just, I never felt actually a part of. How did the drinking work for you and in your favor? It worked amazingly for me. Um, yeah, you know, it was the thing I've been looking for all my life. You know, I used to yeah. jokingly from the early start, I called it my happy juice. I'm like, for the first time in my life, I'm ever happy. I'm ever free. This is the only thing that's ever made me feel good. Hmm. When we were 16, you know, my friends, uh, geniuses, and, and myself, um, you know, we found out we can get these uh, fake IDs down at Woolworths downtown. They were, they were like personal <laughs> identification. And so we went down and got them, and there was a couple places they could work. And, you know, I just remember thinking like, oh, this is amazing. I'm only 16. I'm able to go into this liquor store and actually get stuff. Like, this is just the greatest thing in the world. And went in and, um, you know, got some beers and I got some Jim Beam and um, we were sitting, uh, sitting with my friends in my, uh, my sweet high school car, my 1981 Cutlass with a big bench seat. And, um, <laughs> and I had gotten this, you know, big gulp of Coke or whatever. And I knew already to mix that with Jim Beam or whatever cheap stuff I could afford and Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, my buddies were drinking beers and they're like, man, wow, what? that's a lot you're drinking there. You know, why do you drink that or something? And I'm like, oh, you guys haven't figured it out. Like this does the job quicker. Like you don't have to drink <laughs> as much and da, 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 da. And I remember like thinking like, oh, I'm educating them. Like they just don't know yet. So they might've been looking at me like, oh boy. But here's what I remember about that. As I remember as I was doing that one time in the glug, 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 mm -hmm. I asked myself, I'm 16 years old, I wonder if I might be an alcoholic. You're kidding. At 16? At 16. I, I had known enough to know that both my grandfathers were alcoholics. My dad's dad, you know, took that kind of to the end. I don't know the whole story, but my mom's dad, you know, growing up, I had, you know, two grandfathers. One was stay away from him, like just... You know, wherever you are, wherever he is, just stay away. He's super angry. He's all this. The other one was like Superman. You know, it was like one of the one of the bright spots of my childhood is like somebody like, you know, paid attention to me, talked to me, cared, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as a kid, you don't know. But I just turns out that grandfather, Grandpa Joe, um, had sobered up on my first birthday. And in, in AA, AA, yeah, he was actually uh, I didn't find this out until after I got out of treatment. I'm like, uh -huh. Mom, why didn't you share this with me before? This is good news. Um, but yeah, he, he was up in there for almost 20 years, leading meetings and all that kind of stuff. And when you were growing up, yeah, and I had and I had no idea. How often did you see him? Um, not often enough. You know, we were kind of in the area, and he was up there. So, um, but I just remember hearing before, like, oh, there's problems with alcohol in the family. Da 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 da. da. So there I am, 16, thinking. I wonder if I'm an alcoholic, you know, so for 17, another 16, 17 years, I just, that was always in the back of my head and I just shoved it back, shoved it back with whatever coping mechanism that I could. 
So you're drinking with your friends, you're in high school. Did you suffer any consequences either with school or driving or home life? Yeah, yeah, there were there were a lot of them. I guess, you know, thankfully nothing terrible. I didn't hurt anybody else or, you know, I, I banged up a few cars, um, you know, got in some trouble at school. You know, I was in a lot of trouble at school all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, there was, there was a, you know, quite a bit of consequences. Um, you know, went to jail a couple times, but, you know, mm -hmm. always kind of somehow got out of it or whatever. But um, did you ever put two and two together? The drinking versus the consequences? No. Freshman year of college, I, I, I somehow pulled it together enough to, uh, you know, make it into a college. And um, freshman year, of course, get busted with, you know, sneaking, you know, beer into the dorm or whatever it was. So they send us to like alcohol awareness program. Like you go three days or something like that. It wasn't AA. It was just, I don't know, some kind of awareness thing they were trying in yeah, the yeah. mid-90s. <laughs> and I remember the whole time thinking like, this is BS. Like I'm, I should not be here. Like I look back on that and I just think like, Oh, I had no clue. I was not putting those two things together whatsoever quite yet. What was the rest of your college career like? Uh, it was a party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a five and a half year long party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting because um, I really enjoyed college, but there was a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Like I knew that, um, you know, uh, partying was, was definitely something that, you know, I love to do and everything was kind of wrapped around it. You know, I did get good enough grades to eventually graduate. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of lows. Um, you know, I just drank and I took it past the limit. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, behavioral things that, you know, again, discovered later in life that, um, mm -hmm. you know, really were coming into effect. I remember um, my freshman year, you know, getting upset about something. I punched the window and this is an old dorm room. So it was just the, mm -hmm. the, the old, you know, pane glass. And of course, so, you know, my hand cuts open, there's blood spurting everywhere. And you know, I was already drunk. I just, I left, um, you know, friends were like, what's wrong with you? And I left and, you know, I was, I was already in a blackout mode. And I remember, um, you know, waking up in my car in a park and I looked over and, you know, the sun was coming up and I see blood just all over my hand, all over, you know, the door. And I'm like, what? happened like I'm just it was another one of those what happened and so I drove back and you know my my dorm mate was sitting there and I remember him like calling somebody he's like yeah he, he made it back and then my friends came over and I remember they just kind of all came in and they were looking at me and they're like shaking their head and I was like mm -hmm. you know they've they've been out all night looking for me you know guys girls and all this kind of stuff and I just incomprehensible demoralization you know I couldn't I couldn't say anything like I, there was nobody I felt like I could talk to that like, you know, like what is wrong? I just kept thinking, what is wrong with me? I don't understand. Like, you know. So there were obviously people around you who cared yeah. about you. You had friends, mm -hmm. it sounds like, people who went out to look yeah. for you. Uh, and what were you telling yourself about having a problem at that point? Man, that denial sure runs deep, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I, I think I just, you know, just kept picking myself up, dusting myself off, you know, just, oh, yeah, you know, I just made up some excuse, you know. And, you know, I think that I probably lost a lot of friends along the way, the smart ones. And, um, you know, I think if we were to look back, they're like, yeah, man, that, you know, that dude had some problems. And and I did, you know, and, and here's a thought that popped up, something I heard in, in the program. And, and I, for me, this rings true. Uh-huh. Is that, you know, for all the bad that came with alcohol, um, you know, I look at look back at it now and think like that saved my life. I likely yeah. would have been another suicide statistic. Um, you know, so it, it, it carried me through long enough to get in here and, you know, just start the journey. So walk me down the path from getting out of college uh, to the point that we get to this this party what was what were the next number of years like for you and what were you doing with regard to your drinking so that was pretty interesting because what i noticed then was that a lot of my friends had you know okay mm-hmm. we got out of the, the party school scene and they were kind of settling down married or whatnot and i had money <laughs> i had more than pocket change you know I, I got into sales you know big surprise and you know started making a little bit of money and I was like, wow, like I can afford to do this more. So my partying actually ramped up after college, Mm. you know, so from there until kind of entering the treatment center, you know, it was a good five, six year stretch in there. You know, I remember out mountain biking with, uh, with a friend one day and, um, you know, terribly hungover and he was not. And I just remember going through those woods and I, you know, I didn't have the energy I, I used to have. And I just remember kind of stopping at one point and you know, thinking about talking to a God of some sort, like, man, what, like, this is, this is not good. What had your uh, relationship with the higher power been like? Any kind of religion just wasn't really, you know, um, existent in our, in our family. You know, we, we, you know, Mm -hmm. like we were maybe Presbyterians. Yeah. So I just kind of grew up believing that there was something, but I didn't know what it was. And then, you know, a little troublemaker and at some point, I remember thinking like, hey, if there's something out there, like he or she is not working for me. Like, you know, uh, I just I'm already on the wrong side of the tracks. While you were engaging in all the behavior that was causing exactly, the problem. Exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. I had a high school friend and his parents were real religious. And To what degree was that message of maybe I'm an alcoholic? How often did that come up for you? Not often. Um, but. You know, just little periodic things, uh-huh. you know, that it would pop up. Yeah. So you were a successful sales guy. You were making enough money. What kind of lifestyle did you have? Well, I was a single guy, you know, there for a while. It was just, uh, you know, it was just narcissistic. It was just me. Yeah. So, you know, I was doing doing pretty well in the career and all that kind of stuff. But it was just solely to support me and go have fun with friends and take vacations or whatever. But, you know, that that period right there, like you said earlier, you know, you're just like, hey, how come I seem to be doing the same thing as these friends, but, you know, do they wake up and want to die every morning? Like, do they have the same consequences I do? It doesn't appear that way. I'm like, why am I so different? You know, so I just remember a lot of confusion. And then, of course, the last couple years when I just announced to everybody that I was taking a health break, but really I just was going deeper and deeper every night. You know, when I came into the program, I learned a lot of things, uh-huh. you know, one that, you know, this is a disease and that was, that was a big one for me because I did, I had no idea, 
And I just thought like, oh, I'm just weak. Mm -hmm. Like everybody else can handle their own stuff. I just, I'm just weak. So that would, that was a, a very helpful thing. The second part of the, the first step, you know, our lives to become unmanageable. I really got to take a look at how much I was putting into managing my life. And what I mean by that is I, you know, I had a plan. Yeah. Right. Like, and my plan was, okay, um, I need to avoid all the embarrassing things that I've been doing. I was a horrible drunk dialer. You know, I just love to have cocktails and then call people and tell them all the wonderful things that I think friends, girlfriends, ex girl, whoever. And the worst part about that was, you know, I'd see somebody the next day or two and, hey, man, how you been? I haven't talked to you in a while. They're like, dude, we talked for like 30 minutes last night. Oh, yeah, that was you. Ha, I'm just kidding. Embarrassing, incomprehensible demoralization. So, how does an alcoholic manage that? I made sure to only place phone calls on this one cordless phone that I had that showed all your outgoing calls. So in the morning, I would get up and look and see who I called. So that way, if I ran into them, I wouldn't have that embarrassing conversation. And I think back on that, Howard, I look back, I'm like, oh my God, that was a lot of work. Wasn't that kind of scary to know going into it that you were going to black out? That's what I mean. I, I was preparing for it. And this wasn't like once a week. This was daily. This was my daily routine. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, like the, the Dish Network satellite TV first came out and, and one of them had mm -hmm. the first um, recordable little hard drive thing. So you could record your shows. Anything I wanted to watch after 8 o'clock, I recorded because I already knew I was going to be so drunk by then that I wouldn't remember anything. So I had this huge long list of programs that I recorded because I knew by eight o'clock I'd be too drunk. But, you know, and then I heard about life's become unmanageable. It became very clear to me, like, you know, I was trying to manage my, my drinking, but um, man, it was just, it was getting so much worse and worse. What were your romantic relationships like during this period and how were they affected by the alcohol? Yeah, of course mm -hmm. it affected, you know, the, the drinking, you know, part of it, not so much as, but just the repressed person inside that, you know, I, I sure. had some great women in my life that all really wanted to love or did love me. I had no idea how to return it back. Mm. I see that now having gone through the steps several times, you know, I didn't so much have relationships as I took hostages. It's never any, you know, like you know, physical stuff per se, but, um, you know, it was a lot of emotional abuse. It was a lot of um, repeat the pattern, you know, find the pretty girl, feed my ego. People think well of me once they got to know me, you know, and I had this like it was, it was a very uh, sick, you know, once they did love me, then I had this thing where I'm like, well, if they do, then they there's something wrong with them. So then I would start to push them away. And then, you know, um, once they finally got the message or wisened up or whatever the case and said, okay, I'm out of here, uh -huh. then, of course, I go into fix-it mode. Oh, no, 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 you have to come back. And I would try everything to repair the relationship, and then sometimes I'd get them back, and I'd do the same darn thing. It was this, this really, really gross, really gross pattern and cycle that, you know, um, you know, I caused a lot of pain out there. 
So once you lost them, then did you go into this period of anger or grief? What were the feelings after you lost them over your own behavior? Well, uh, a lot more alcohol to pour on top of it to, you know, anesthetize anything that felt like a real feeling. I, I, I was scared of any kind of feeling. Mm. I mean, you know, I look back on my first year of recovery and, um, you know, the people say, oh, the first year is a gift. Well, when I was in it, it was not a gift. Um, it was it was just awful but you know how it is and you look back in retrospect it was beautiful in so many ways because I remember moments of being in a meeting and I felt this emotion I'm like well that's what that's like I've heard about that like oh wow like uh, you know I, wait wait I'm actually happy for someone else and like mm. you know there's nothing in it for me like wait oh so I just repressed all my feelings like basically all my life we'll be right back my friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. I did therapy before I did AA, before I got sober. I'd done therapy for a number of years. Did you seek any help prior to, uh, prior to getting sober? Oh, yes. Right before I got sober, I went to see a therapist to uh, treat what I thought was anxiety. You know, one of the many things that we tell ourselves for we come to reality. But you know, that lady, I don't remember her name, but um, she gave me the first copy of the big book that I had ever seen. I didn't even know what it was. And she said, mm. you know, you might find some answers in here. And I remember I took it home, started to read it one night. I remember standing in my bedroom and, and I don't remember what page it was, but basically it just talked about, you know, the alcoholic death. And there's a reason I, I tell newcomers to read the book with a sponsor, you know, a translator who can help you understand this because I saw it and I saw, you know, doomed to an alcoholic death. And I literally like dropped the book. And I just remember thinking, I'm screwed. I'm so screwed. So you gave up based on what the book said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. I mean, that would be a good excuse. It wasn't long after that, though, that I think I had had a uh, an annual physical uh, with my um, GP. Um, and, you know, this guy, so I'm in my 20s and um, flashback to, to college. I remember going to the doctor a couple of times and, and and I think I was trying to reach, I was, Howard, I was trying to reach out to, in college for help because I knew like I just had these massive, massive problems and I didn't know what to do. And, and, and alcohol was the only thing I knew, but that caused me more problems. And I remember like trying to talk to him a couple of times, but this is it probably wasn't even forthcoming, it, you know, what's a general physician going to do anyway. But, um, yeah, I remember telling one, like, man, I just, I, I don't know what to do. And, da, 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 da. and he probably referred me to a, a therapist that I never went to. But what I remember is on the intake form, you know, da, 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 how are you feeling? This and this, how many drinks per week? And I remember like sitting there going, oh, I wonder if I should be on it. Okay, let's see. Monday night, Tuesday night. It was like 80. And I'm like, oh, if I write 80 on here, like, that's oh not going to be God. good. But I'm like, that was kind of a wake up call. <laughs> so, I mean, that was in college. Anyway, so flash forward to, you know, before, you know, treatment, 
therapist, anxiety, first copy of the big book, um, and went in for another annual physical. And, you know, I was doing physicals often in my 20s. The doctor, I remember asking me a couple of times, he's like, why do you need all these tests? You're a healthy young man. And I'm like, I always like to sound responsible. And um, what I was doing, Howard, is I, I was secretly hoping that like he would come back and say, Jay, we got your test. Your liver is failing. You must stop drinking today. Mm -hmm. Thinking that that would be, you know, okay, this is what I need. I was like searching for something that would help. What happened instead was he said, man, have you ever, you ever thought about AA? And I was like, ooh, maybe. And, you know, my, my uncle's voice came into my head from hanging around at beer parties, you know, AA is for, for wussies. He didn't say wussy, but, you know, I was like, I, I think I was just old enough to kind of have those voices behind me. I was just like, I was like, you know, I might try that. And I went home and I remember, you know, phone books. We still mm. had those back then. And, you know, I found the AA clubs in there. I, I circled them. You know, I could, every day I thought about it, like, oh, I'm just going to go to one of these places. But I didn't know the first thing about it, you know, other than what I'd seen on TV and movies or whatever. And But I just knew, like, okay, there's a solution. And on this coffee table, I had all my solutions. You know, I'd come home every night and drink. So there was my big solution, you know, a big drink right here. Um, on the end of my coffee table, there was a bunch of self-help books. Because I was going to find out what was wrong with me in there. <laughs> Um, there was a Remington 12 gauge, which seemed to be an option It, it, you know, some nights. And then there was that phone book with, you know, the AA circled. And I remember like, you know, going home every night, like, okay, which one's it going to be? And, um, you know, I, I just got to the point where it was like, you know, some, one of these is going to be the answer. And like, mm. you know, once it does and. What happened was I knew this one guy in my uh, my field who had quit drinking a few years before. And I remember him as a wild party guy. And I was like, hmm, well, he just might know a little bit about this AA thing. So, you know, called around, got his number, and he knew me from my dad. And um, mm -hmm. next thing you know, we're having lunch. He starts to explain a little bit about me, and I'm just like, oh. That's it. I'm in. I'm in. How do I, how do I join this thing? He's like, well, um, you know, you could go to meetings, you could try treatment. And I'm like, oh, I got to do treatment. I got to, I, I know I got to do it. And I just remember sitting at that lunch, like filled with some kind of like a little bit of hope that I hadn't had in like so, so long. Mm -hmm. I went home, started calling treatment centers, got drunk while I was doing it. Cause I was so happy I had to get drunk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, uh, had, had, I was in a blackout again, but I had apparently talked to enough people at the treatment center and like somehow got in, you know, the journey began from there. Uh huh. And how old were you at that point? Uh, 29. Was this a residential treatment program? Residential. Yeah. So it was the full 28 days followed by intensive outpatient. Mm -hmm. For what, six weeks? Well, um, probably I would say that's the, the normal course of thing, except, um, you know, uh, I got in there and um, my last like big, huge spree before that was very first ever Houston Texans inaugural game against the Dallas Cowboys. It was September of 2002, you know, we went, we had a blast, you know, don't remember any of it except for I burned the back of my leg on this grill out tailgating <laughs> and someone told me, 
to put mustard on it that would help it. So, I mean, I probably needed to go to the hospital. But I had this huge <laughs> burn on my calf with mustard on it. Like these are the you know solutions that I had. Howard. Right. Three days later, it seemed like it was all kind of a blur, really. Um, you know, I wake up in this treatment center, you know, kind of look around. I'm like, oh, my God, how did I get here? Had you checked yourself in in a blackout? I actually, um, you know, did the drunk dialing thing. I called a bunch of friends. I think it, I think I was thinking it was like my farewell tour <laughs> or something. And I, you know, I didn't know anything. They all told me later. Um, and But I actually called my dad and stepmom. And it was like two in the morning and I'm like, oh, I need help. You know, can you take me? And, you know, to their credit, they did. They came and got me. And um, I remember sitting in the back of their their uh, Toyota Avalon, just pounding beers mm. and, um, you know, kind of took me in. They don't like it when you just kind of show up, I think, un unannounced at like 3 a.m. But somehow they, they took me in. And anyway, a couple of days later, I came to in there. When I came to, I remember like feeling like, okay, I made it to get some help. Mm. I'm finally doing something to get some help. I don't know what this looks like. I'm scared shitless, but I'm finally doing something and this feels okay. And so it kind of felt like I, you know, reached home base a little bit and I'm like, okay, I got here and I didn't die. Like that is a major accomplishment. Right about then, um, the nurse says, hey, you have a phone call up here. And so I walked to the little station and, you know, it was my dad and stepmom on the line. And they're like, hey, we've been thinking about it. We've been talking about it. We don't think that you need to be in there. You probably just need to, like, see a therapist. And I remember just kind of, you know, resonating with that and, um, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to agree, like, yeah, oh my God, I overreacted. But, but the overwhelming part of me was like, I think I said, you know, hey, uh, I, I respect what you're, you know, where you're coming from, but like, I think this is the best for me. You know, a lot of that I've processed over the years is, um, you know, there was tons of alcoholism. There was tons of alcohol in my family, but there was really, other than one grandfather, you know, no solution. So it was, you know, we don't go get help. You know, nobody does that. And looking back, I think, you know, that was a lot of their own stuff. This isn't a blame thing. This is just my story. I remember, you know, starting to go into meetings and hear people talking about like, oh, yeah, this is my fourth treatment. Yeah. You know, my parents told me this is the last one and they're they're hopeful for me and all this kind of stuff. And And I was like, wait a minute, is anybody else's parents telling them not to get help? <laughs> right. What? This is really weird. So, you know, that coupled with, you know, you hear all kinds of things in treatment and, um, you know, a couple of people are like, oh, man, you don't look that bad. You're not an alcoholic. And I'm like, oh, sweet, maybe <laughs> I'm not. So I kind of, I think at the time I kind of thought of myself as like, okay, I'm alcoholic light. Yeah. You know, I, I really loved the fellowship. I loved the meetings. Are you talking about the AA meetings that were in the treatment center? In the treatment center, yeah. Okay, because they have a large alumni group, don't they? That brings meetings back. Yeah, because I, I was shocked. I was like, wow. You know, these people are saying things that are my inside thoughts that I did not know you could say outside. And it was just, it was fascinating to the honesty was just riveting. You know, I go back to the, you know, the child just always confused and fearful. I was like, oh, 
we can actually talk about these things. It was just, it was miraculous in a way. Obviously the treatment center is gonna want you to go to AA after you get out, but while you're in treatment going to AA meetings, what was your feeling about the connection between treatment and AA, the separate nature of, of the, the two processes? You know, it was, all, it was all new to me, so it was all a learning process. Uh, but I do remember like uh, the lunchtime meetings, you know, there'd be some alumni that would, you know, come back and pop in for a meeting. and. Hmm. And it was like, I remember looking at them thinking like, oh, wait, they're not in here because it, it was a smaller treatment center at that time. So you knew everybody. And I remember thinking, who are these people? And then finding out like, oh, they've already been in here and they're coming back. And I remember thinking, what a bunch of losers. <laughs> they must have nothing else to do. Like, why would you come yeah. back to a hospital? Like, it, it made no sense to me. You know, then I started to see in Friday, big Friday night meetings and there was a lot of mm -hmm. joy and laughter and. You know, so I started to get it a little bit more at that point. So I kind of went through that thinking like, okay, here's my solution. Yet, I think I can still party a little bit. And I remember, um, you know, they elected me the was it, alumni <laughs> president or the whatever, the group president, like my last week there. And, you know, I think I wore that as a badge <laughs> of pride and find out later it just means you're the biggest nut <laughs> right. in the nut house. And. And so I kind of had this like, oh, okay, well, I, I know the, you know, the talk now. And what I didn't do, what I didn't do was, you know, that little mustard seed of a thought that like, oh, I can drink again. You know, I didn't talk to anybody mm. about that. I did my uh, release program and, you know, they, they gave you the, mm -hmm. the meeting guide and they said, you know, here's all the meetings, you know, pick out one for each day. And I remember I wrote down two mm. and my counselor came over and she looked at it and she's like, you know, why do you only have two on there? And I was like, oh, I'm not mm. going to need all those. <laughs> and I just remember the look she gave me like. Did she straighten you out on that or, or you just, she let you go with the two? Uh, she probably tried to talk to me and I probably didn't listen is probably what happened anyway. But what did happen is I got out of there and drank the very next day mm. and, you know, came back a day later, look at my wounds as a now <laughs> loser alumni. And I remember like, she's looking at me and I'm getting my desire chip and, you know, it's kind of, you know, she wasn't surprised at all. You went back into treatment then? No, you just came back? No, no. I just came back as kind of a, as this is all a, a big blur. So you mentioned the aftercare. So I was coming back for that, but I was, you know, I kept resetting my sobriety date. Like I had so many dates, mm -hmm. I didn't know which end was which. So I'd come back to my facilitator and first thing you do is write down a little book, your date. And I was like, oh shit, what did I write <laughs> last week? Cause I couldn't remember the last lie I told. And so it was just a big thing of that. And, um, you know, so I was coming back. I was acting like I was still sober, but I wasn't. Sometimes I'd get a desire chip. Sometimes I wouldn't. It was just this big facade that I was putting on, thinking that anybody actually cared. It was, just, you know, obviously just me. And, uh, you know, so I did that for about mm. nine months and collected, I don't know, 15, 16 desire chips somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, you know, I love the program. Mm -hmm. I love the people. It was so interesting and all that. Uh, I, I would pick meetings to get desire chips in which I thought like nobody I would know would be there. The old, old uh -huh. love, the smoky one. And sure enough, you always run into somebody who knows. And, you know, I thought people cared, you know, um, still it's just so self-centered anyway. So I go to this men's meeting at, at 1215, you know, I knew the regular guys there and I was 
getting desire chips there like almost every week. Mm. At one point, you know, there was over a dozen guys in that room, you know, like I got up to get another one and there was like a single clap in the back and it was a kind of a guy that was new and didn't know me. And I remember thinking like, I'm screwed. Like these people aren't even clapping for me anymore. <laughs> I'm in so much trouble. Yeah. So most uh, treatment centers, they do a lot of indoctrination with the AA program. Steps will be worked. There will be a requirement to get a sponsor before you leave. There will be some kind of interaction with uh, between the treatment center and the AA program to, to aid in that transition. Did you have a sponsor at any point, and, and were you using them? What did that look like? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did get a sponsor, and um, the same guy that I, that I had the, the lunch with, and... Um, Bless, bless him, man. He had so much patience. I don't, I don't know why he kept me because I, I just, you know, I remember one time, you know, calling him up after another bender and he's like, well, why, why didn't you call me before? I'm like, because you would have talked me out of it. And he's like, congratulations. The first honest thing you've wow. said, you know. So, I mean, he stuck with me through a lot of that stuff and, and helped me tremendously. And he's still a good friend today. So, so uh, when did it finally stick for you? At, at what point did you finally get to the realization that you needed to stop once and for all? Did you have to hit a bottom to do that? Uh, did you get off the elevator sooner? What did that look like? So that same sponsor, um, Phil L. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I haven't seen him in a long time. Um, he tricked me and told me he had a business meeting uh, for advertising and marketing at this place. Sat and met this guy. Right. I think we talked marketing needs for a minute, and then next thing you know, it was about, like, uh, Jay's needs, <laughs> and Jay can't stay sober, yeah. and, oh, by the way, we have all these programs here to help, and, you know, within 10 minutes from there, I was meeting Mary B., who scared the ever-loving crap out of me. It could see right through me, right through my BS, but it was enough to you know, finally like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, you know, like a good alcoholic, I, I was asking for help, but then I was telling him all the reasons I couldn't do it. One of which was like, oh, this is an expensive program. I, you yeah, know, yeah. I can't afford it. Well, there might be some scholarship help for you. Another one was, well, this is a family program. I have no family. I'm not married. I'm, my parents won't come to mm -hmm. this. And they're like, well, don't worry about that. I was trying to tell her like, this wouldn't work for me because, you know, she's like, well, let me ask you, do you want to have a family one day? I'm like, well, sure. Do you want to this? Yeah, sure. Would you like an opportunity to break the cycle of everything that's come down into your life for your kids? Right. And I was like, whoa, this lady's deep. Like mm -hmm. that got me. So I, I signed up a, a part of the, the stipulation of my scholarship was that I not drink. I know it was crazy. So, you know, I signed a piece of paper, you know, if I, if I drank, you know, I was out and that kind of thing. First couple of weeks of this, it was intensive outpatient and it was four nights a week. And, you know, I still see some faces in the rooms today from back then. And, and I remember the counselor was trying to get me to open up and I would just sit there and just grip this chair and I'd look at the ends of my 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 knuckles and they were white and I was just like just determined like I, I I didn't want to talk I was just so full of fear and I would leave there and we got out around 8 45 mm -hmm. usually on most nights which worked well for me because there was a little liquor store mm. and I could leave there and go get liquor and then drink it and you know by the time I even hit the the, the west loop I had a buzz on 
So I didn't have to come back yeah. and pretend yeah. that, you know, I'd, I hadn't been drinking. Uh-huh. And I did that for about three weeks before who later on became my wife. Um, she had participated in a little bit of the Al-Anon portion of that, in which I understand they told her um, her greatest suggestion is to run. And she probably <laughs> should have taken that suggestion when they found out we weren't married. Um but right. she ratted me out. Probably now that I think about it, the greatest gift she ever gave me. So you were married by this point? No, no, no. We were just dating. It was newly dating, too. Newly, newly dating. dating. So you brought this woman that you were newly dating into this situation? Well, it was more like, hey, I got to do this family thing. I'm trying to not drink again. You know, would you, you know, any interest in joining? You know, so she said yes. And, um, but I, I was having her cover up my lies because she knew I was drinking. And I'm like, you can't tell anybody because I'll get kicked out of there. Well, after like three weeks, I guess she had enough or something happened. And she, you know, she she narked on me. Uh-huh. And um, another counselor came and got me out of group and pulled me into the room and said, have you been drinking? And I remember like kind of leaning forward and going up to like start, which is what I knew how to do best, which is just lie and say... One of the 50 things that might come out of my mouth. Well, who told you that? Well, no, that's not, you know. Instead, the the oddest thing happened, which is I just, I feel like I literally ran out of lies. Hmm. And I just looked at her and I said, yes. Hmm. And I got this sense of relief that was new to me. And she then said, well, and I'm like, so how does this work? Am I out? And she's like, well. I think the first thing you need to do is go tell your group. And I'm like, oh, God, no. So, you know, she's like, well, you know, if you want to stay in, you know, this this might be a start. So we went uh-huh. in and, and I had to tell the whole group, which at the time was devastating because, I mean, Howard, we had been together three whole weeks. Right. So, yeah, we were tight. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I just said, oh, you know, yeah, guys, I've been lying to you. I'm still been drinking. You know, they said whatever they said, kind of no big deal. That was May 29th, 2003. That's still my current sobriety date. And that was the day I literally felt like I ran out of lies. I ran out of all those things I could tell everybody and tell myself. And that was, interestingly, the one sobriety date. I've got an old AA book with a bunch of different dates written on the sides. You know, that's what you did in treatment. (laughs) Crossed out another one. It's the one that I didn't plan. They used to try to plan, like, oh, I'll get sober on April Fool's Day, because that'll be fitting. Uh, you know, I always try to plan my sobriety. It's the one I didn't try to plan, and it's the one I still have today. So that was your moment of clarity then, mm-hmm. sitting there with her, running out of lies. Did you feel any kind of divine intervention during that period, or was it that's just where your mind went? I think I was, uh, since I came into the program, um, you know, I only, only had about nine months from the very first meeting to that moment, which of course felt like five years when I was trying to keep up the charade. From from the, the first time I came in, I had heard about, you know, Bill Wilson's white light moment. So I'd been seeking that. I never got that because I think God knew, you know, maybe I wouldn't know what to do with it. So no, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't associate with it. I just I, I mean I remember I felt some uh relief, some shame a little bit, but relief mostly. Mm-hmm. Did I think that day I walked out and that would be my last drink ever? No. But something happened. Something shifted inside me. I did not recognize it at the time. I was only looking back. 
You'd mentioned something about nine months in AA. Were you still going to AA meetings at this point mm -hmm. while you were drinking? Mm -hmm. Were you getting desire chips after every time you drank? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah. That's tough sitting in an AA meeting knowing that you're the guy in the room who's still drinking, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that did, that did not feel good. It, it, it is completely true that a head full of AA and a belly full of whiskey do not mix. So did you go back in to the outpatient part of that program? Well, yeah, they let, they let me stay and I continued another two, three months or whatever. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, that's when it all really kicked in. So the sponsor you were working with, did you start working on the steps in earnest at that point? How long did it take you to get to your fourth step and then your eighth and ninth? Yeah, we started working on them pretty diligently. I think I was, I don't know, maybe six months in and, and we were on step nine or ten. And what I remember about that was um, he said, all right, it's time for you to start sponsoring other people. And I just started laughing. I'm like, oh, wait, haha, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't I don't have anything to give anybody in. And he literally, we were like after a, a big meeting, kind of said, this guy over near, here needs help. And he kind of grabbed my elbow and pulled me over and introduced me to him. And to this day, I'm so grateful that he did that. I don't know if I've ever done that. Who knows? But um, I started talking to that guy and, you know, he didn't last long. But then I got another sponsee and then that started. I mean, I, I can tell you unequivocally. The only reason I'm sitting across from you right now uh -huh. at 18 years continuous sobriety is because I got into sponsoring. There's just no way that my self-centered personality, whatever, would have would have stayed the course this long if I had not gotten into sponsoring other guys. And then gotten to see guys like yourself and many others did the same thing and then realized that is the key to long-term contented sobriety. I've seen you over the years with those sponsees in the same meetings, guys who you sponsor and then guys that they sponsor. It's so cool to see that, that lineage continuing. So you found sponsorship was the service connection for you to staying engaged and in the middle of the program. Absolutely. It was, it was maybe, I didn't put this together till now, but you know, it was me at eight years old, recognizing the feelings of how good it feels to help someone else giving the kid a quarter. Yeah. And then flash forward all these, and I remember like driving home one time after doing some steps with the guy and I just had this natural, unbelievable feeling that didn't come from alcohol or anything else. And I was like, wow, this is it. That's the God moment, isn't it? Yeah. I think that was the closest I might've come to, you know, the, the white light type moment, but I just remember it was natural, like great feeling. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm real clear on a, a few things though. Like, you know, it's my blessing that I get to sponsor people. You know, I, I, I just, the way I look at it is, all right, you know, God put us both here. I've been through these steps. You haven't. Here's this amazing instruction manual. We're going to open it up, invite God in, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. I can't predict, you know, if you will stay sober, you can't predict if I can. But, you know, so far this has been working for me, and it's a blessing. And, you know, it has nothing to do with me in terms of, you know, these aren't my sponsees. You know, this is just, just a gift that God gave me yeah. and a message that flows through me. And if it helps somebody, great. If it doesn't, that's fine, too. I can't I can't predict that. Um, but I will say that, the to your point, you know, a great feeling of satisfaction is after I get somebody through their steps. And invariably, they always ask the same question. Oh, can we start them again? I said, yes, you can, but with somebody else. It's your, t your time. So when I'm driving into a meeting yeah. and see one of my sponsees working with somebody else, it just, 
it warms my heart. It's not about me, but it just warms my heart that, yeah. you know, somehow God yeah. uses all of us and just is interconnected for, for those that are ready to hear the message. Yeah. And that's a great realization to have and to keep foremost in your mind. For me, it is that I have to remember whatever service work I'm doing with regard to sponsorship, they have their role. I have my role. God is directing the is directing that play. I'm not. And if they go mm -hmm. out and get drunk, I've done the best I can. I cannot take responsibility for their sobriety. They can't take responsibility. You know, they can't assess blame on me. It just doesn't work that way. There's 18 years between your last drinking today, almost 19 years in May. Lots happened during your sobriety, and I wondered if you would touch upon a few of the milestones in your sobriety, either the bad times you got through using your Alcoholics Anonymous program, the good times as a result of staying sober and being a sober man. Yeah, well, at 10 years, it was definitely my turn in the barrel. That uh, girlfriend that didn't run uh, ended up becoming, you know, wife and, mm -hmm. and two beautiful kids. But at about 10 years, uh, the marriage was falling apart. Mm. Right in the middle of all that, you know, I get a call. My dad's dying of cancer. And then at the same time, a bunch of really bad stuff is going down at work. So it was like, um, I've always been okay with physical pain. Like it's going to hurt. You get better. But emotional pain, I just ran from. Hmm. That was the most intense period of emotional pain, you know, I, I have ever had. And, and, you know, you saw me, a number of guys saw me in this room. It was about shoot 40 pounds lighter, believe it or not. Um, you were frazzled. Oh man, it, it was just, um, you know, I kind of look at it a lot of different ways. Um, I've got a lot of gratitude because knowing I could go through all that mm -hmm. and make it out the other side and, and having so many guys that, you know, just came and put their arms around me. I mean, there was about a period of six months of just intense, intense pain, you know, and then strength comes from all that. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of, a lot of really good things have, have happened. Did you ever feel like taking a drink around that time? Yeah. So um, when, it, when it first became very evident that the marriage was dissolving, there was one night where I was in my study uh -huh. trying to sleep uh, on the floor with a sleeping blanket. And um, I just I could not sleep. It's about three in the morning. You know, I remembered my wife had kept some Modellos in the back fridge and there might have been a little champagne or something. And I just remember thinking like, well, I got to do it because like, you know, mm. like my circumstances, like everyone will understand if I do <laughs> right? this. Yeah. So I remember I literally I sat up and my next thought was, no, mm. she might take this, 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 this. But the one thing that she or nobody will ever get is my sobriety date. Oh, yeah. And that was the next thought I had. And I got up shortly after and I drove to a meeting and I grabbed a guy and, you know, for the meeting. And I was like, hey, can we talk? And I just, bleh, I just completely bawled everything out to him. And ever since then, I never even had a thought about having a drink to get through that. Yeah. What a powerful experience. So that wasn't, that wasn't me. You know, I, I, you know, I moved my feet and I did the work, but I think it was everything I had done up, up until then, you know, that gave me just enough strength to be able to make or, or have a thought like that even come into my head, you know? It was like a God moment for you, wasn't totally. it? Totally. So all that happened at around 10 years with the, the divorce or how did you get through that? I got a little apartment on North Lane because it was directly halfway between club, mm -hmm. a lot of meetings, and a church that I attended. So I figured if I was in between these two things, I just might make it. 
So I was doing three meetings a day, starting off, you know, at the early morning, midday, and then going over to the church and doing stuff. And basically, I just never stopped moving my feet. And when people hear that, especially people who don't know whether or not they can get through a tough time, mm-hmm. your father, he did he pass away? He, yeah, he ended up, he, he passed real quick. So it happened in the middle of all that. Which, by the way, divorce is way more painful than, than death. You know why? Why? Because when people die, they don't do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's true. I'll remember that one. So you got through all this. Mm-hmm. By virtue of the work that you were doing, mm-hmm. I remember you at the time, you were definitely holding on to the center of the program. Mm-hmm. I see you at a lot of meetings. Mm-hmm. We would, you, we'd have lunch. So you got through all that. That's mm-hmm. all behind you. Anything else that happened in the next eight or nine years going into the present moment? Lots. I, I guess I'll tell this because it's more present day. So this just happened. Uh-huh. I talked a little bit earlier about that mustard seed of a thought in which, ooh, maybe I can drink again. I feel like I tried everything, every which way to still be, you know, able to successfully drink. I feel like I have a PhD in relapsing, Yeah, which is a, a great strength of mine. So mm-hmm. I, I, I know how all that works. This popped up two days ago. Hmm. I had some oral surgery and it was quite extensive. So they told me they're going to have to put me under, you know, I told them, you know, hey, I've got, you know, some addiction issues. Don't give me any of the good stuff. Right. So, you know, had a pretty good plan going into it. So this is literally two days ago. Hmm. Went in for that, had a friend pick me up. As we were leaving, I was high as a kite. Yeah. And I remember coming out of there and just feeling so unbelievably good (laughs) oh i missed this and we're driving over to the pharmacy and i'm having these thoughts that i hadn't had in a long time here was thought number one oh this feeling is so good it's probably going to wear off pretty soon i wonder if i asked this friend to take me to a liquor store what they would say Mm. oh i wonder if i can get to the pharmacy and tell them that my doctor made a mistake and that you know i shouldn't have ibuprofen give me some of the good stuff oh I wonder if that guy who I see at meetings, it's always relapsing. I don't have a drug dealer. I wonder if he knows people. I wonder if I called him. This is all in the span of an hour leaving, coming out of this you know, local anesthesia. Wow. And the, it was a beautiful day. I cranked the windows down. I put shades on, oh, uh, you know, and I was like, turn the music like I was in that let's go like party mode that I hadn't felt that in a long time. And, you know, we get to the pharmacy, they're not ready to go over to Starbucks. And, you know, I'm just, just high as a kite sitting in this front seat. You know, it wears off pretty quick and, you know, got home and took a nap and woke up and I, and everything was coming back to me. And I'm like, and Howard, what happened was those feelings scared me. I have, I have a healthy fear of relapsing and not taking care of my sobriety. So much so that the, my biggest enemy was not talking about it and thinking, I'm good. I got this. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see here. Pride and ego could have helped step in the way of old friend of mine, Sandy. You know, she had relapsed after a long time and, and gave me the lesson of, you know, it doesn't matter if people think bad about you. What matters is your sobriety. Right. Actually, it wasn't even a relapse. She just, you know, had thought about drinking, you know, and people are afraid oh, to yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, what do I do? I take all that and um, 
thankfully, physically, I felt well enough. So I go to a Friday night meeting around the corner from here and grab the leader and say, hey, man, if you got any openings for burning desires, I got one. And sure enough, he called on me and, uh, you know, I just kind of told the same story I told you. And I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Okay. You know, I'm fine right now. But what I learned is whenever I have those ideas in my head that a liquor store starts to sound good, the number one positive thing I can do is talk about it and get that idea and thought out there, take the power out of it. And I basically said, you know, probably a couple people in this room that think like, oh my God, you know, what's wrong with him? Like, I don't care. I really don't. I, I just want to stay sober. So I would have been getting a call from you earlier today saying you couldn't do this interview because you'd gotten drunk if you had followed through. <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. Actually, you probably wouldn't have gotten a call at all. <laughs> You're like, where's Jay? Oh, that's great. What a great way to you know put a bow on this whole thing, because here you are, you had this opportunity, you were right in the midst of it. And there was still a part of you that because of all the AA that you've done over the years that knew what to do with that. And that intuitive thought or decision that came, I'm a firm believer that the intuitive thought or decision gets fed by the continual application of the program to our everyday lives, right? Yep. The fact that you were able to do that is, I mean, it's amazing for one thing, given the power of the disease, especially when you're getting a taste of it. Because I've had a couple of major operations and I remember waking up and having that same feeling and still having to realize, wait a second, I'm still an alcoholic here. I'm mm -hmm. still an alcoholic. This feels really, really good. Of course, you feel really good, and then mm -hmm. it wears off, and yeah. then the pain is just outrageous. So there's no really big payoff at the end of it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But it, it was a good reminder that the beast is still in me. That's a great thing for us to remember. It's a good thing for us to end on. You've, you've, you've been a big part of my sobriety for a long time, Jay. I love you and you're a good man. And I really appreciate the fact that this message has been so powerful that we don't know who it's going to help. This thing's going, the podcast is being listened to a number, all over. I don't know where, who's listening, but somewhere along the way, somebody's going to hear something you said and it's going to resonate. And I just love that about your story. To hear it all together like this, it's just been a real treat for me. So I want to thank you a million for doing this. Well, thank you very much. Been a big part of my recovery as well. So, Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, J.S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your favorite podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Downcast, and other popular podcast player apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. 
This podcast is simply my way of giving back that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.